Hi there. Welcome to another episode of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship guide and coach, and I'm the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my services or about the podcast, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback, which you can provide by going to the BertScholl.com contact page and filling out the form. Please do. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at But Seriously The Cancer Podcast and on Twitter at But Seriously TCP. And make sure you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash But Seriously The Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Hey, Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm having a great day. It's beautiful weather out here. It's going to be like 70 degrees. So when we're done, I'm going to go outside and Aww. do something with my boy. I'm very jealous. I'm in nearly Arctic conditions in the UK at the moment. So Really? <laughs> yeah, we had this Arctic wind come in and it's just made everything really, really cold. So that's why I've got the uh, hoodie on this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Oh, you know, I think in like two days, it's going to be 35 <laughs> and it's, our our weather is just up and down and up and down. You, I mean, it's it's seventy one day and until until you know real spring shows up. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of an argument between winter and summer. They just kind of, <laughs> go between with winter, it. <laughs> between winter and spring, they just go back and forth. So you're in Ireland. I'm in Wales. You're in Wales. So tell me about Wales. I, of the UK, I know nothing about Wales I know the least oh really okay so Wales is um next to England um but lots of people get confused with England but it's next to England um Welsh people wouldn't like it if you said Wales is in England (laughs) um because the English took us over a very long time ago Mm -hmm. um but we have a very sort of rich history and culture we have a lot of castles here we're well known for our castles um, well known for music and song, um, the land of poetry. So yeah, I think all things that have kind of fed into my childhood a bit. Um, but yeah, I I love being Welsh. I moved I moved to England for university actually for a little bit, but I came back afterwards because I I got a bit homesick. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So tell me about uh, who is a uh, Welsh musician that we should a singer that we sh- we must listen to um do you know tom jones tom jones i, I would know. sing for you but it'll be it won't be good for the for anyone listening <laughs> uh, everyone thanks you all right <laughs> 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 the tom jones is on the list great because i would mm-hmm. love to it's just yeah the english seemed to have a habit many years ago of uh just taking what wasn't theirs yeah 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 a lot a lot of that <laughs> i don't think the english were unique though i think uh, that was just uh, the european way it was just the way things were i think i, I, don't, I don't know if the world has changed all that much but <laughs> 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 so you live in wales mm-hmm. and what were you diagnosed with uh how old were you when was it? I was 14 so this was in 2008 it's actually Tomorrow will be my 13-year cancerversary from when I was diagnosed. So Mm. um, I'll be having a big gin tomorrow to celebrate. Um, I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, so cancer of the bone. And it actually took 
quite a long time to be diagnosed. I think I first started going to the doctors at the end of 2007. I used to be in a lot of sort of amateur dramatic theatre things and I loved dancing. And I remember one day, it felt sort of like growing pains in my leg, which is kind of expected from my age, I guess. But I remember that it was aching so much that I didn't want to dance in the in the amateur dramatics group, which was very unusual for me. I was always kind of first one up dancing. And I said to my mum, this is, this is really strange. You know, it's, it's not getting any better. I think we should go to the doctor. So we went to the doctor and the first doctor we saw, uh, because my knee was quite warm a lot of the time, so the cancer was actually in, my, in the bottom of my femur, because mm. my knee was quite warm, he put his hand on my knee, felt the heat from it and diagnosed it as arthritis, which I thought was quite unusual for my age. But I did, mm. I did know of people having cancer, um, having, not cancer, having arthritis younger, but I, I, there was just something telling me it wasn't right. So they put me on anti-inflammatories and obviously they didn't do any good. Um, so it got to about February 2008 and I went back to the doctor again and the second doctor we saw was a different doctor. Um, she said it wasn't arthritis but thought it was ligament problems. So diagnosed me with ligament damage and actually gave me exercises to do to help my, my leg. So at this point my knee was quite swollen and my thigh was sort of dipping in towards my knee. So I knew that there was something, something really, really wasn't right. Uh, so she gave me exercises to go and weigh and do. So I started doing those at home. And then by April, I just thought it's not getting any better. I was limping. And we went back again to the doctor, saw a different doctor again in the GP surgery. And she agreed with the second doctor and said it was ligament damage and recommended that I continue doing the exercises. Um, and it was literally just as we were going out the door that she said, would you like an x-ray to put your mind at rest? And my mum said, yes, please. Yeah, and right. Like, That's what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you. I'm like, wait a second. Nobody wants to look and see. I know. It was it was crazy. So thankfully, they sent me for an x-ray. And then that same day, uh, my the the head GP from that surgery came to the door and said, you need to go to hospital immediately because uh, the tumour was actually so big at that point, it was 10 centimetres in diameter, so it had actually broken the bone. And hence why I was limping. <laughs> wow. Um, but they obviously saw it straight away on the x-ray. And uh, yeah, I went into hospital that night into the assessment unit Um. I remember actually really distinctly that they put me on crutches straight away, but because I'd been so used to dealing with the pain and just walking around on, on a broken bone, I kept getting up from the bed to just walk to the toilet and the physiotherapists were like, no, 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 <laughs> go back on the crutches. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very traumatic and very strange, but I, something inside me knew that it was something bad the whole time. So every time they diagnosed me with arthritis or ligament damage I knew that something just wasn't right you know that sort of intuition um yeah so that was 13 years ago now which is crazy but um yeah then I started chemotherapy um a few weeks after that I think I started chemotherapy 
So I had nine months of chemo. Nine uh, months of chemo. Yeah, which is quite heavy going. I've only had a conversation with one other person who had osteosarcoma, and she had to have her, I mean, I, I think it was osteosarcoma. I'm mm -hmm. definitely not ever going to, yeah, it was. <laughs> 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 I had to look at my notes from our conversation. She <laughs> had to have the, she's a dancer as well, and she had to have the bottom of her leg removed. Oh, really? And the amount of chemo is such a long time. It really got my attention. I'm not going to go back and look, but you said you had to do how many months? Nine months. Nine months of chemotherapy. I mean, I did six. Mm. Uh, the first time I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with stage two rectal cancer. I did six, you know, well, I did, what do they do? They do like five and a half weeks of chemo and radiation before surgery. And then yeah. after surgery, I did six months of chemo. And the second time I was diagnosed, it had metastasized to my liver. Wow. And I did, yeah, gosh, six and a half, seven months of chemo. In my head, like, that's just been, like, okay, that's the max. And then, like, you folks <laughs> with osteosarcoma, it's, like, nine months or even... Like, so you're 14 years old. Mm -hmm. You're a dancer. You love theater and dancing. Mm -hmm. And they find this tumor. Yeah. And they tell you, that what are your options? The only option at that point is to do nine months of chemotherapy. Did they yeah. Wanna, they didn't want to do surgery? They did surgery, so I had before I or after. I think I had it. I had chemo before and after surgery, so I think I had chemo for about three months. Um, or was it six months? It was maybe no three months. So three months in, I had surgery. Um, I was really, really, really lucky because I didn't have to have it amputated. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the kids that I knew who were on my ward had amputations and I just counted myself extremely lucky that that wasn't the case for me so instead of amputating what they've done um which is just mad and blows my mind every time I think about it is they took the bone out and they put a metal joint in kind of like a knee replacement but a bit bigger um and they kind of slotted it into my bones so that it, it works as like a an internal joint, I suppose, um, which is a bit <laughs> is a bit strange and always goes off at airports and things like that. And I have a massive scar on my leg, but I just count myself so lucky that I didn't. Yeah. Have and how big is the joint? Um, it's about from the top of my femur down to the middle of my calf. The top. Do you mean? The top of your femur, like up by your hip? Yeah, up by my hip. It's quite big. <laughs> to how to to where? To about the middle of my calf. Hmm. It's difficult to picture. I've got an X ray photo I should send to you at some point. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Did did they <laughs> um so did they remove the bone up to where the joint begins or is that because they wanted is it for stability or another reason? Uh where do you mean now? On like the... you say the the joint runs up to about to the top of your femur. Mhm. Mm like around the bone, on the bone, in the bone, in place it's of the bone. It's kind of like or, See what it's I mean? kind of yeah, it's it's quite <laughs> difficult to explain. It's kind of pushed inside the bone 
So my normal bone is here and then it, and then it's pushed inside to, to stabilize it, um, which is quite strange. And I've also got my, still got my own kneecap. So they flipped my kneecap back. Um, they described it as, you know, those sunglasses you get and you flip the, <laughs> yeah. flip the things up on them. They said they flipped my kneecap, my kneecap back, took the bone out and then flipped my kneecap back on top again. So mm. I've, I've this is the part of the podcast kneecap. where my brother is going to go, la, 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 plug his ears and be like, <laughs> I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> no, it doesn't phase me at all. Like, trust me on this podcast, we talk about everything because yeah, this important. is the experience. You know, I, I have a colostomy as a result of the first cancer. And mm-hmm. when I talk about that in detail and how, and the, the, the amount of surgery they had to do on me, yeah. That's, my brother also skips that part because just like, <laughs> no, thank you. I don't, don't want to hear that. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I don't really, I mean, even if I do cringe at something, I'm not really phased by it. I just kind of notice it and be like, oh, that's interesting. I find yeah. it fascinating. They fold your kneecap up, must have mm-hmm. drilled in, you know, removed maybe some of the bone, drilled into it. Mm-hmm. It must be for stability that it goes up so high. You couldn't just put like a short little joint in there and then expect a person's body weight to be able to. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like fixed into the bone in some magical scientific way that I couldn't possibly Science, magic, right, (laughs) they're the same to me when it comes to, you know, (laughs) that kind of surgery. I have no idea. I don't Mm. know. So so you did three months of chemo, Mm -hmm. then then surgery, and then nine months of chemotherapy. So so, so I did three months of chemo, surgery, and then six months. Then six months, okay, so it's nine months total. Total, yeah, yeah. My apologies if you said that. So I have to go back, when you say this, I have to go back to when Mm -hmm. I was 14. Yep. Um, (laughs) My mind completely overwhelmed with the thought of girls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Trying to hide it all. Yep. Not feeling cool enough at all to be able to handle actually being myself. Well, I mean, it's actually admitting to that, you know, and like, but just starting to like have girls as friends you know what I mean and like and mm-hmm. and you know like and dated like the, my second the second girl I dated you know was I was 14 Aww. right like so you're a 14 year old girl and they're like oh you have cancer mm-hmm. like, yeah I want to may I ask you about that like I, I haven't really given yeah, you the choice I really dove right into it but <laughs> <laughs> no of course it was a month before my 15th birthday so it was yeah, it was like my last month of being 14. And it was a very, very strange time to be diagnosed with cancer because like the same as you, I was thinking of boys. I was thinking of teenage dramas with my group of girlfriends. I was, you know, I was in that teenage world where everything was just very dramatic and the world mm. was, was kind of starting to open up for me a little bit. And then being told that you've got cancer, I think it made me grow up very, very quickly. Um, it was kind of, I don't know, it was, I, I sometimes think if I was diagnosed with cancer at the age I am now, I'd be a lot more scared of it than I was then because I did have that sort of naivety of being a teenager and not knowing all that much about cancer, apart um. from seeing, you know, people on the TV with cancer, I didn't have much experience of it in my in my life. Uh, so I did have that sort of, I'm actually quite a positive person anyway, but I did have that sort of blind naivety to the whole thing, I think. But mm-hmm. 
being that age, uh, I came out of the whole experience with a completely different mindset. I just didn't feel like a teenager anymore. And also, you know, I was in hospital for such a long time. And even when I was out of hospital, I was tired from treatment and, and you know, didn't really want to see anyone. I was kind of getting over the chemo in between the different cycles. And my friends at that point were starting to go to house parties and starting to drink in parks and, you know, and, and have these experiences that I just didn't have at that point. I was on crutches and my mother slept next to me for, for nine months because I was on an IV drip as well and I couldn't carry both <laughs> at the same time. So it was around a very... Yeah, she was she was always with IV me. IV around the clock, IV drip. Oh, no, no. Um, IV for chemo. So I'd have that... Uh, I had six cycles of it. So I was on it, you know, when I was in hospital for about three weeks. So I'd, I'd be on IV drip all the time. So in the hospital, my mum was always there helping me get in and out of bed and go to the toilet and things. Um, so I want to know about being 14 almost 15 and your friends going to parties and you not but i just want to <laughs> since you just touched on the chemo just so we can all get an idea mm-hmm. so when you did three months of chemo yeah were you in the hospital that whole time yeah i was in so i was on three drugs i was on doxorubicin and cisplatin together and then i'd be on them for a week then i'd have a two-week break and then i'd be on methotrexate for two weeks after that but I was usually <laughs> I was usually kept in for some reason or another like my platelets were too low or I had an infection or something like that so the hospital was really our second home at that point okay <laughs> I see so in an ideal world they'd give you the chemo and send you home mm-hmm. but the way your body was responding to the treatment yeah you spent a lot of time in the hospital yes yeah. And your mom was glued to you. Yeah. My mum was by my side the whole time. My dad was working, so he'd come in and see us. He was the breadwinner of the family, so he'd come in and see us uh, when he could, well, every night basically, and bring me McDonald's and things like that and comforts mm-hmm. from home. Um, but yeah, my parents were absolutely my rocks throughout that whole experience, I think. Yeah. I bet i mean what else would i do right but be by my child's son mm-hmm. yeah how old were you mm-hmm. when you were diagnosed with cancer bit first time i was about three weeks shy of my 37th birthday i was 36 years old mm-hmm. and uh the second time i was diagnosed i was 40 well it was in 2011 so i was 41 and I was blessed I was fortunate enough to have gone through a lot of rigorous mental training like I signed up for these courses and programs that had you the design of it is to have you notice like there's something that happens in your life and then you make up a story about it right Mm -hmm. like um, a snowball hits your car and then you know first thought is like you know who's that kid who threw a snowball at my car, right? You just made up a story. You actually don't know why a snowball hit your car. Yeah. 
<laughs> there could be a hundred different reasons why, but we make up stories. So the training that I did had you really just get, here's what happened and here's what you made up. So now go back to actually what happened. Mm-hmm. And, Interesting. Right. And then start noticing the blind spots in your thinking. How many places in my life do I live by these stories? How many places in my life do I make these things up? So I had like rigorous training for a good, you know, on and off and then for like six years, but like for like the last maybe year and a half prior to getting cancer, it was some real rigorous training about, you know, so I was able to approach it mm. in a way that I could keep, you know, being with what's so versus what my mind made up, made up. Yeah. Being with what's so versus what my mind makes up. Now, granted, my mind made up tons of things, but mm-hmm. I spent less time dwelling in those places. Yeah. That's, that's you know what I mean? fortunate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and trust me, don't think I didn't go down the rabbit hole and just lose my mind as far, you know, mm-hmm. scared to death, crying my eyes out. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a brutal experience, uh, mm-hmm. but it helped to return <laughs> to a place of like, okay, this is what's so, this is what I'm dealing with. Yeah, definitely. Your mind is a powerful place, isn't it? Yeah, yep. Yeah, it it's a... Uh, It'll just take you for rides. Like it must be like every once in a while, your mind will be like, "Hey, hold my beer. Watch this." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had one of those just the other day. I was, I got so upset and angry, and I'm like, and I literally sat back. I'm like, "What is happening? This isn't even real." Yeah. And there was just this surge of emotion just going through me, and I was like, "Okay, you clearly have an agenda." <laughs> so I'm not going to reach out to anybody, and I'm just going to do my thing and take some naps because. I don't know what your deal is, but I'm not going to participate. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Take some nap. Sometimes we all just need a nap. <laughs> Sometimes we all just need a nap. Okay, so, so you, t- tell me again. You did the, um, the, how do you say it, doxorubicin? Doxorubicin. Doxorubicin and cisplatin. They were, and they would, you'd do a week of that? Yeah, a week of that together. And then I'd have and a then you'd... break for two weeks. And then mm. I'd have methotrexate for two weeks after. Hang on. Am I getting this right? It's been so long. Do you know what? I think my it's brain okay. has actually blocked things out. I <laughs> I did. Docs Reeveson and Cisplatin for two weeks together. Then I had a two-week break. Then I did a week of methotrexate. Okay. That's what I did. <laughs> So those must have been some uh, pretty, uh, how do I want to say this? Just the impact on your body. What do you remember about that? I don't expect you to remember all the details. You know, <laughs> week, it's, just, it's just really, it's, it's the experience that I'm curious about. You yeah. Know? I know a lot of people listening right now are also really curious. Like, Definitely. What was your experience of those uh, chemotherapies? It's strange, actually. I was talking to uh, my boyfriend about this. The other, well, he's my fiancé now, but... Um, he, his sister is my best friend. So I grew up with, with around the family, basically. So he knew me the whole time I was going through this, but we weren't, you know, that close. And then we recently got together. So that's so sweet. Yeah, (laughs) it is quite sweet. Um, but we were talking about this the other day because I haven't really spoken about it much with him and, you know, I've hardly really broached the subject of it. And he asked me what my experience with chemo was. And I think, I think my body 
I didn't realise how strong my body could be until I was going through chemotherapy because it was brutal, <laughs> like absolutely brutal. And um, I was very sick a lot. I was very nauseous. I was vomiting all the time. Um, when I wasn't thrown. Yeah, it was horrible. You were vomiting. I never got that far, just the nausea. But the, once you're vomiting, like that's just... Oh, oh, it was it was gross. And it's really, I was a self-conscious teenager, you know. So my family would come in and they'd all come in around me and I'd, <laughs> I'd be like, I'm really sorry, I'm going to throw up right here, right now. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so yeah, so I was vomiting a lot. And then when I wasn't vomiting, I had a mouth full of ulcers. So I wouldn't be able to eat anything so I lost about two stone I think altogether because I was just I could barely eat anything um so tell us American folks what two stone is in pounds oh god I don't know um <laughs> so, I look it up yeah yeah please because I'm so bad at math <laughs> so let's say uh uh two stone I should just say one stone, right? But two stone <laughs> is 28 pounds. 28 pounds. I lost 28 pounds. <laughs> Wowee. Yeah. That's a lot. And, you know, that, that seems like a lot to uh, lose for a 14-year-old. Mm, so it was, it was quite extreme. And then the tiredness was just overwhelming. Um, it really knocked me for six. Um, and then the, I guess... The, the other impacts of it were, you know, your tolerance to infections is lowered and your immune system's lowered and not being able to really, go, well, a bit like COVID, I guess, not being re not being able to go out to really crowded places and right, things like yeah. that it was quite, it was quite limiting. And I was in a wheelchair for a lot of the time as well because obviously it was my leg, so... I'm sure you weren't self-conscious about that at all. I know. <laughs> I know. Not at all. Yeah, that was, you know, that was a really strange experience because I never thought I would end up in a wheelchair um, for any reason. Like, why would you? And when I was in a wheelchair, I noticed how little attention people pay to you when you're in a wheelchair. The only people who... or if people did look at you, they'd give you really sympathetic looks and I couldn't stand that. I hate being like a victim of anything. Um, the only people really who would come up and speak to you were, were kids because they didn't know any different. Mm. So they'd just come up and, and you know, smile at you or, or chat to you and things. But it was, it was really an eye-opening experience for me because I was only in a wheelchair for a few months. And I think people who are in a wheelchair for a lot longer than that you know some of the things they have to deal with and accessibility issues and and things like that you know it must be really really tough yeah yeah I was in a wheelchair uh at one point in my treatment just because I didn't my doctor didn't want me exerting a lot of energy mm -hmm. and I went to an event and the looks on the faces of the people I knew oh no Clearly, they saw me in a wheelchair, and they were like, oh, no, he must be in really bad shape. Yeah. You know? No, I wasn't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, no worse than I was, you know, 
you know, overall mm. uh, through the treatment. Uh, but, you know, w- because I have a colostomy, you know, I wear a pouch. Yeah. And kids are the ones who'll walk up and say, what's that? Yeah. And it's not uncommon for a parent to say, sweetie, you know, don't bother him. I can, no, it's perfectly okay. Yeah. I go, I'll only it. tell you if you promise to laugh. And they're like, what? <laughs> I go, this is where the poop comes out. And then we all just <laughs> laugh. You know what I mean? But, you know, adults very rarely ask. You know, we, we learn to, to that's, we're taught that it's not polite to be curious. Mm, yeah. You know, and, or not to express our curiosity openly. Yeah. Like, you know, my, uh, when my son, when my, uh, my youngest son was maybe four or five were at a deli getting a bagel. He says, Papa, is that a boy or a girl? I said, I think that's a girl. He walks right over, speaks to the child, goes, no, Papa, it's a boy. (laughs) I'm like, all I want to do is say, excuse me, he started this conversation, not me. (laughs) But they just don't have the same sort of things holding them back that we do as adults. And it's wonderful. Yeah. It, I think, you. you know, uh-huh. be, being, having that curiosity, I think, is so important and being able to have those open conversations with people. I mean, so often we kind of shut it down thinking we, we don't want to be impolite or offend in any way, but actually that's the only way we're going to learn about each other. Right. And I've had people say to me after listening to an episode, you know, like, they knew one of the people on the podcast. They're like, you know, I wanted to ask him that question, but I was never going to. <laughs> yeah. Or a friend of a friend told me this person was like, I was really curious, but I wasn't going to ask him that question. <laughs> and I'm just on here asking all the questions. I mean, you know, of course, every guest, you know, you have every, uh, may I say, you have permission and, you know, expect I encourage you to, you know, to not answer any question you don't want to ask. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, that was not what I meant to say. <laughs> I want you to know, and every listener, every, I can't talk right now. I'm going to edit all this out. <laughs> I want you and every guest to know that, yeah, I have lots of questions, but you get to say if you're going to answer them, you know. I'm, mm-hmm. I want everyone to feel comfortable. You know, it's a very personal experience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I love that I get to ask the questions, and, you know, it's like the kids. It's like they just ask. And what really stands out also is that older folks didn't, want to engage with you yeah like how so like would they just not look or try to Cause i notice people thinking i'm not noticing them looking yeah and sometimes i'll turn my body towards them and pretend i'm not noticing so they can get a full view so they can see <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i just felt people they sort of glance at you and then look away or pretend not to see or or they give you these really sympathetic smiles that were just i don't know i just I don't like being made out to be a victim in any way, and that used to drive me insane. It's the I same. Bet. It's the same as when um, uh, I remember someone in my family saying to me, "I think this was actually a couple of years after I finished chemo, and and she had a cold or something, or she was, you know, just feeling a bit ill, and she was complaining about it, and then she stopped and she said, "Oh no, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't complain about this to you after all you've been through," and I was like, "No." It's, complain away it's absolutely fine you know my pain isn't comparable with yours it's not the same thing uh so yeah i i don't i i guess people feel uncomfortable around illness and uh things that they're not used to yeah yeah there's 
two point two things I want to respond to. Mm-hmm. One is uh, the the being in the wheelchair and people not looking. Like if I walk by someone and I can see like they're in a wheelchair for good, mm-hmm. I'll want to say hello. Then this other part of my mind is like, well, don't say what are you going to treat them like they're special? Would you say hello to this person if they weren't like in the yeah. wheelchair? And I'll just like you know again the mind just you know doing its thing that it does mm-hmm. and. Why is all that happening? Because there's times I would avoid saying hello to people who had like, you know, mobility issues, you know, um, that really stand out, you know, the ones you can't miss. I would avoid yeah. saying hello because I wouldn't want them to think that I was doing it out of pity. Mm. And that was my mind is taking me for a ride, right? So now if I see a person, we make eye contact, I can say hello. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And if I look a little extra longer... Because I noticed something that really stands out to me. I mean, I'm not going to gawk, but like there are times I may look longer because it's different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I think it's really who we're being in it. And, you know, the person might not be bothered. It might bother them. But like you can't, you know, how do we honor our humanity and yeah. theirs yeah. and not pretend and yet be courteous? You know, it's, exactly. you, you, it's you're not going to get balance. it right. <laughs> What's that? It's a delicate balance. <laughs> yeah, and you're not going to get it right, and I'm mm. not going to get it right. Yeah, and that's okay. But it really, it really is. It really points to just you know a, or, it's one of the difficulties that you went through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as a kid, as as a young teenager. Yeah. Another thing you said when you said it was your aunt who said you know I I, don't, I shouldn't complain. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sick. You know, I, it's like. There's that fine balance too, right? Like some folks will say, well, I shouldn't compare myself to you. I say, uh, exactly. So don't compare yourself to me. Yeah. And just like it, or, you know, what will they say? No, they'll say, uh, when people will say, well, gosh, I shouldn't complain because look what you've been through. Mm. It's like, well, A, the worst thing you've been through is the worst thing you've been through. Yeah, exactly. It's going to impact you the way it impacts you. And when I've been sick, like my immune system never bounced back from the chemo. Really? I get sick. Oh gosh! Like when I'm sick now, if you're if someone get in my family gets a cold, they have it for three days. I have it for ten. Really? That's so interesting. Yeah, and when I had the flu last, you know, January of 2020, before the lockdown all started. Yeah. Supposedly I didn't have COVID because I got an antibody test and it came back negative. But then I've heard those tests are terrible and they don't work very well. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what do I know? I'm no doctor. <laughs> but I was sick for, with the flu for 26 days. You are joking. I didn't. I tried to work in the month of January. I went into my studio like oh, a few times. So I just go back. On. So that's my immune system, right? So, yeah. Like, what's my point? My point was. I don't remember what my point was. Just about people <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that that people get, uh, people compare themselves to us and like, oh yeah. And so when I was sick that long, I was complaining. I was keeping it. I was doing some mild complaining. I don't like to complain very much, but I did express some frustration with some people that are dear to me. And uh, yeah, like when you stub your when you stub your toe, it hurts and it messes things up. Mm-hmm. Like cancer messes things up too. But it's like it's it, it, it it's it's an interesting line that we walk on, right? This uh, this this tightrope of like, you know, you don't want to uh insult somebody Mm. by acting like your life is way too hard but at the same time 
you know, it's my having cancer doesn't take away other people's problems. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's not an insult to me that you have problems in your life. Like we're all human. Yeah, definitely. And I think when I was going through treatment, that was a big thing for me was that, you know, I'm self-conscious enough as it is as a teenager, just kind of trying to trying to learn who I am as a person. And then people were treating me differently, I guess. They weren't, they were wrapping me up in cotton wool a little bit and they weren't talking about things that they normally talk to me about. They were just talking about cancer. And What did my, you say? They were wrapping you up, what? In cotton wool. <laughs> in cotton wool? Yeah. Have you never heard that expression? No. No? You've Who? used a couple. I haven't heard, I haven't known. Oh, like, really? You said, uh, <laughs> you said, knocked me for six? Like, I'm <laughs> assuming that's just like, thing. <laughs> knocked you on your butt, yeah? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> And then um, wrap me in cotton and wool, you mean so they're like, like you know, wrapping you in bubble wrap, like being careful around you, yeah, being delicate. Exactly. Oh, I love yeah. it. I love it. I just want <laughs> to <just wanna> follow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it was kind of people didn't really want to talk about other things because they were considered, I don't know, unimportant in comparison to me having cancer, but realistically I wanted people to talk about things that they normally talked about so everything felt a bit normal <laughs> rather than being in this bubble oh Ali that's so powerful like so many folks that I speak to who are going through cancer they're hesitant to talk to people like you know take phone calls and things because they don't want to tell everybody how they're doing mm, they yeah. want a different conversation they want to hear that you had a cold that you yeah. have a cold and, and, and you had a crappy day yesterday. They're like, yay, tell me about that. Exactly. You know? Like, tell me about the beautiful walk you had out in the woods. Don't ask me about me. You know, and if a person wants to have a conversation about their diagnosis, they will. Yeah. Or they won't. But, you know, it's, uh, there are, it's, it's quite common for people to, to not want their cancer to be the center of attention. Yeah. Yeah. I always say to people, cancer is one part of your story not the whole thing mm -hmm. so when you're going through it although it seems like that's all you can think about I think the people around I actually lost my dad to cancer five years after I finished treatment so Aww. yeah so he passed away god eight years ago now I think um but throughout that time you know all you can think about is hospital appointments uh treatments etc etc and I think the best thing you can do for someone in that time is just to talk about things that aren't anything to do with cancer. Just talk about the things that you would normally chat about, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And it, uh, and I do understand, you know, that for some folks it can be difficult to do that. Cause it's mm -hmm. like, it's all over their face, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like they can't not think about that. You have cancer. But <laughs> when I, prior to being diagnosed, I had a really hard time speaking to people about cancer. Mm, yeah. I was doing some serious faking it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's yeah, like, it's tough. And then once I got diagnosed, I went, oh, like <laughs> no, nothing's different. Yeah. Like, the one piece, though, is that when we get diagnosed, we're facing our mortality. Mm -hmm. like the illusion of immortality is shattered. Yeah. It sounds like, I'm curious, for you, was that the case for you or did your naivety just like 
have it be like, eh. <laughs> well, I always thought that I didn't even think about dying or death or anything throughout okay. my treatment. I thought that that was, um, something was always telling me that I was going to be okay and everything was going to be okay. And I spoke to my mum a few months back and I said, you know, it just never crossed my mind that I would ever die. And she said, well, it did because you asked me, am I going to die? So I think my brain has just completely blocked that part out. Um, and I think when I was going through it, there was obviously my family was so worried about me. And I kind of, and I still do it now when, I, when I'm, ill or you know if I get sick I I don't let on how bad it really is I kind of keep it all in um to be the strong one I guess um and I think that's what I did then it was kind of like a, a reflex like a survival instinct just just be the, the person who's the you know the positive one and always looking on the bright side and and be that person who thinks everything's going to be okay. I did have this this feeling inside that I was going to be okay and that everything was going to be fine. But I think it must have crossed my mind that I could have died because I asked my mum about it, but it's just been blocked from my memory now. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, mm. your mind may have just been like, okay. Yeah. I might die, but like I'm not going to just, you know, perhaps your mind was just not ready to... To I wrap around so. it. Yeah, because in yeah. my mind, I was like, okay, I'll have the chemo and I'll be fine. Like, <laughs> I'll just have the chemo and then get on with life. And um, yeah, and then obviously chemo was a bit a bit tougher than I anticipated. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in addition to the nausea and the vomiting, mm. do you recall anything? Did anything else really stand out that made it difficult? Um, I think those are the two main things, even now. I can't, I hate vomiting. I hate mm. anything. Like nausea is just the worst experience for me. Right? Like yeah. migraine, terrible, but not as bad as nausea. Oh, you know, I broke I broke my arm before, but not as bad as nausea. Well, maybe, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's worth, it's, it's possible. It's, it's, nausea is the worst. It's, I'd rather be sick and vomit than, than have the nausea constantly. I'd rather just get it out the way. <laughs> right, because it, it relieves it, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like exactly. when you foolishly drink too much and then you're like, oh my gosh, I think I'm going to throw up. Okay, actually, no, I want to. Please, like my head is spinning. <laughs> yeah. Make this go away. Get out of my system. Um, mm. Yeah, those are the two main things. I remember passing out one time um, in hospital because um, I think one of the nurses gave me an anti-sickness drug. So I had um, a Hickman line going into my chest. And... Is that a port? Um, it's similar. It's kind of... Uh, I have a scar here, actually. It, it's like a line with two little dangly bits <laughs> um, on right. the outside that connect to the IV. Um, okay, okay, yep. Yeah. It's yeah. like a port, but is, is it... Is it uh... I don't want to say permanent, but like permanent through treatment? Yeah, permanent through treatment. Yeah, so it just okay. saves them putting cannulas in your right hands now. all the time, basically. Um, oh, and they just put that nice little tape over it that keeps it uh, mm. keeps it uh, from getting infected, and then it runs up over your clavicle and into the vein going into the heart. Yes. Okay, it's a different option. Yeah, so I had okay. that, and um, 
Oh, I can still feel the soreness now where it, where it went in mm-hmm. into my chest yeah. um, because it used to pull on my skin when, when they pulled it, you know, to, put, to fix it to the IVs and oh, oh it was horrible. Um, but uh, one of the nurses at one point gave me an anti-sickness drug through the, through the Hickman line and I was on a children's ward so a lot of, and I was obviously quite young, so a lot of the drugs I was having were weren't adult quantities and she mm. she'd come from an adult um cancer ward so i i don't know whether she got a bit confused and gave me the wrong dose or what but she put this anti-sickness drug into my hickman line and i got up to go to the toilet and i just remember saying to my mum get the nurse i'm gonna pass out i'm gonna faint and my mum ran to the end of the thing and um, I was in the bathroom. I remember one of the consultants had to come in and carry me back to my bed because I just flat out gone. Um, and I think wow. that's the only time in my life that I've ever fainted. And, and I, I think it must have been to do with that, the anti-sickness drug that they just put into the Hickman line. But yeah, that's that's an experience that I remember because I remember thinking, is this is this what dying feels like? I don't know. Everything's just sort of gone very hazy in front of me and then, then it's getting darker. And um, yeah, I remember I, I hated that that experience because I didn't like feeling like I had no control, you know? It, it felt mm. very, like everything was out of my control a bit. I'm with you there. When I was getting my chemo the first time, you know, the six months of chemo after s- surgery, mm in the first diagnosis they would give me steroids before they'd start the treatment and mm. then they'd give me anti-nausea medication yeah and i would keep you know nodding off and picking my head up and i was just like out and i and i told them at one point no wait there was one point where i asked the nurse to check my pulse because mm. i thought my heart was barely beating oh god and she goes, your pulse is good. Your blood pressure is good. I go, I don't. I think something's wrong. And she went, got the doctor. Doctor came back, checked it. He's like, you're fine. It's just the sedative. The next yeah. time, I'm like, no more. Yeah. Like I would rather be sick. Um, some of the nurses had recommended that I try uh, smoking pot to not be nauseous. Oh really? Now, I was 36, and you were. 14 15 years old so i don't think they would have recommended that to you um, it wasn't it wasn't legal then but mm. they just knew people were doing it and yeah. i was like that's nonsense like i used to smoke pot when i was a kid we just said that to, we, you know any reason to make it legal but <laughs> but but then i actually tried it before this next uh visit yeah and i walked in with my sunglasses on and the nurse just burst out laughing right <laughs> but it worked it oh, wasn't hundred wow. percent, but it was it was really helpful. And oh, uh that's interesting. I, yeah, I'm like, I do not want to be knocked out and just like gonzo and nodding mm. off and just this powerlessness of like, you know, I already have no power when it comes to the cancer diagnosis. Yeah. And I actually found that liberating. Once I could get through it and actually be with it, I'm like, wait a second. You know, after it broke my heart and devastated me, mm. eventually where I got to was, wait a second, if I have no say over this. Yeah. Oh. Oh, then I don't have to. I don't have to try to control it. I can just like give that over to fate. You know, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they'll they'll give me the treatment the best they can. But mm. I didn't like this in and out of powerlessness. Like 
nodding yeah. off, waking up, nodding off, waking up, not knowing if my heart's beating properly, like just getting so freaked out is mm. uh, I'd rather be nauseous than that. So actually in our com- in the list we were making earlier, <laughs> I'll take <laughs> nausea over that. <laughs> no, nausea is now number one. I know it's a, it's a weird, it's interesting you say that actually about control because I find that as I'm getting older, when I was younger, I, I didn't really, control wasn't really a thing that I thought about too much. I kind of go with the flow. And I kind of found now that as I'm getting older, I place a lot of emphasis on routines and I have to do this on this day and, and making my to-do lists and things. And I think that comes from a feeling of being out of control when I was diagnosed with cancer and also when my, when my dad had cancer as well. And I feel like, I, I don't know, I get really sort of into routines and if it's broken, it throws me a little bit. It's quite a weird thing, but I don't know whether that's come from, I do think it's it's sort of stemmed from having cancer. And it's something I have to remind myself every now and again that you just have to surrender to the universe sometimes and just let things unfold as they will. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Sometimes you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, I think I I got into it a few a few years ago. I got really into kind of tracking my calories and things like that and and getting really into the food I was eating and things like that and yeah, I think that was just me trying to exert some sort of control over my future in some way. Yeah, and that makes sense because at a young age, your future was just like turned upside down as far as where you were going and the life you were living. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's something I've noticed recently. (laughs) Mm, That's really interesting. Mm. Speaking of your future, were you able to return to dance? Um, Well, I was told that I shouldn't run, ski, dance, any of it. Um, but I did. Ever? <laughs> yeah. So I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't run. I shouldn't ski. I shouldn't do dancing. Um, so at that point I was kind of a little bit older. So I was getting more into reading and writing, I guess, more than dance and theater as much, but I did go back and I did do, you know, um, like dance exercise classes and things like that. And I went out with my friends to clubs in high heels and danced like all yeah. night long. <laughs> you know? um, but I never did. I never really went back to doing it on the stage as much, I guess. Um, but it, it was one of those things where when the doctor said I couldn't do something, I really wanted to do it. <laughs> Right. Yes. So I was. Uh, yeah. You gonna prove uh, prove the doctor wrong? Yeah. Exactly. So I'd never be much of a runner, so that was fine, and I was highly likely never to go skiing, so that was fine too. But dancing is something I really always enjoyed. So yeah, I tried to keep it up in in different forms, I guess, on a nightclub dance floor and things like that instead of <laughs> in musical theatre. Well, that's. I would imagine like stage dancing would be far far more demanding. Yeah. Definitely. Versus just having fun with your girlfriends, dancing at the club. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how far would you have to travel to uh, to go skiing? Yeah, I think you can go skiing in France, which is probably an hour plane ride away. 
No skiing in the UK? No, not... Mm, there's probably sort of, I don't know, like pretend skiing <laughs> things, but not the real deal, you know? <laughs> kind of if you must. <laughs> yeah. But I, I always say, you know, if anyone wants to go skiing, I'm more than happy to stay in the little lodge drinking hot chocolate by the fire. That's absolutely fine with me. <laughs> mm, right? Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah. I wonder so. if there's been upgrades to the devices mm. which would allow i mean you'd have to go through one heck of a surgery to yeah have one. <laughs> yeah maybe at this point in your life you're like yeah i'm good <laughs> i'm okay yeah i think they need to change so there's little brushes in there somewhere um i think they change them at some point uh i think every seven years or so and it's been 13 now so i don't know when i'm meant to be having them done when they come loose brushes? i guess yeah there's little brushes in there i don't know what they do or <laughs> why they're there but there's little brushes in there that I've been told need to be changed when they get a bit wobbly um hmm. but I think that can be done through keyhole surgery so I won't have to go the whole hog <laughs> all right well that's a that's a bit of a relief yeah yeah but the um I had a lot of physio actually after my surgery uh, to help the muscle to build up around the joint mm-hmm um, so it's not, you know, you can still, you notice the, the difference in my legs if you look closely, but otherwise you wouldn't really know, you wouldn't really be able to tell because I, I really went for the physio. <laughs> I was determined not to walk with a stick or on crutches or anything. I just, yep. I just wanted to be independent again. Um, and the first time I actually walked without crutches, I remember it because I had to go, so I had my surgery in the July and then in the September I went back up to Birmingham, which is where I had all my bone surgery, um, which is about an hour and a half away from here. Um, I went there because they're the specialist hospital and I had to have a, an intense week of physio and I went in a hydrotherapy pool uh, with the physio and uh, he said, okay, because I, I got in with my crutches and was kind of holding onto the sides and he mm. said, okay, walk towards me. And I said, I can't, I haven't got anything to hold on to. And he said, just walk towards me because the water will balance your body. So I walked towards him and it was kind of like this mind-blowing moment where I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm able to walk without crutches again. Um, mm. And it was after being on them for so long, you know, I got used to using them all the time. Um, and that was the first time that I walked without crutches and it was, it was amazing. It was it was sort of life changing because I thought, right, I am going to be able to walk again, like I used to. Oh my gosh! Just imagining you having that experience with the the buoyancy of the body and the water mm-hmm. brings this awareness to you, like, oh wait, I'm going to be able to walk again. Yeah. Like yeah. the possibility wasn't even there. Mm, yeah, because it was such. It was such a long process, you know, and like after, straight after the surgery in July, they got me out of the bed the next day because they were like, you need to start, you need to start using your leg. Otherwise, there's no point. You need to start using it straight away. So I was up and walking around, but it was very, very slow. Like it was basically learning to walk again like a child. So the joint, I find... You know how when you stand up and your knee kind of locks into place when you mm-hmm. stand up straight? With this joint, you feel it a lot more. 
So I was very aware of that kind of snapping into place motion. And you have to lock it into place before you can put any weight on it. So it took me a long time to kind of get used to that motion and that process. Um, and I just didn't think walking without crutches would, would be an opportunity, like a, a, even an option for a really, really long time. And then as soon as I got in that pool, that was like my freedom. <laughs> that was my freedom from, from the crutches, from the wheelchair, from everything that I'd been used to for the last few months. And it was a step, literally a step towards being independent again, which was a massive thing for me at the time. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. What mm -hmm. was possible for you was, like what you saw as possible prior to being in the pool mm. was yourself managing this leg movement and and doing everything it took to use this new joint and anticipating life being like that. Yeah. And then you get in the pool and you listen to practitioner you're working with and you take your steps and and suddenly what you see as possible mm -hmm. is an entirely different future yeah and it sounds like you just went after that you're like wait a second if that's for real <laughs> yeah. i want it now i want as fast as i can get it absolutely absolutely i just uh, when i got out of the pool and i had to go back on the crutches again I was dying to be back in the pool. Oh, <laughs> I, I wanted to it. get straight back in and, you know, oh, get off the crutches, lose the crutches. Um, yeah, it was, I've never been able to swim really. I'm not much of a swimmer, but the water, just, just having that water to balance me was just amazing. And I think especially as a teenager, you know, you, you really wanting your independence then. And f to be attached to a drip and on crutches and in a wheelchair and with my poor mother having to sleep next to me for nine months, I just felt like a child. I didn't feel independent at all. And there were always people around, you know, I was hardly ever on my own, which is a wonderful thing because I have wonderful friends and family. But I didn't have that sort of independence that you crave as a teenager, you know. And yeah, once I got in that pool, it made the world a difference to me. Oh, I love it. I love it. Can, <laughs> can you think of anything that like shifted for you or what you started doing differently? Or was it just get me back in that pool as much <laughs> as I can? You're probably never late to any of your appointments. <laughs> yeah. Get me in that pool. I was right there. Yeah, I had a week of that. So I only had the week there. And then they no! saw... No! Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, and then they gave me exercises to do at home. So every day I was doing those exercises. I was trying to walk without the crutches as much as possible and um yeah just trying my best to grab that independence back um yeah it was uh it was something I wasn't I'm a very determined person <laughs> and it was something I wasn't gonna give up easily because I knew a lot of people who'd who'd had osteosarcoma um and were walking with limps or walking with um, canes and walking sticks and being that self-conscious person that I was I didn't want to draw any more attention to myself than I already had had for the last few months so I wanted to fit in as much as possible which is you know human yeah. instinct I guess I just wanted to blend in with everyone so doing that physio every day and making sure that I got it in I was doing it as much as possible um was key really to making sure that I was able to 
to walk half normally again, I guess. Sure, right. We want to be able-bodied and intact. And Mm. when we can be, we will be. When we can't, Mm -hmm. then we will create the life we create with that new part of ourself or lack of part of ourself, depending. Uh, But when we have the option Mm. to fit in, to not stand out, I have with the colostomy, I now wear button-down shirts as I am right now. Yeah, because if I wear a T-shirt, the way it hangs over me, it makes my pouch kind of poke out, mm. I, you know. And I wear like a belt around it. It's a, a hernia belt because for because I need it because the way my body responded to having the colostomy. But it's a natural hernia oh. because the intestine is actually exiting through the abdominal wall. Yeah. But I wear the belt, but I wear the button-down shirts because I don't want it to stand out. Now, when I go to the beach and I swim, mm. I mean, it has to be like 90 degrees, which is like what? around 30 what would it be celsius like let me let me look it's like a <laughs> so yeah like if it's around 30 degrees celsius mm-hmm. 90 degrees fahrenheit then i'll swim but other than that i don't, I don't even i'm like you you said you don't need to go in the water like yeah me either like water is yeah. great for washing and drinking but i don't go in it unless <laughs> i'm raging hot yeah. but when i do go in and i have, and my pouch is exposed i don't care mm. yeah uh, but when i'm walking down the street or i'm at the store I'd prefer to have it not stand out because I know that when I see somebody with mm. something protruding from their body, I naturally look. Yeah. And then it just creates this whole thing. Uh, maybe I'm still growing into having this, but I like to, mm. you know, wear a loose button-down shirt. That way, it's just not standing out. It's just a yeah. Let it be seen. Let it be seen when it's seen, but not when it doesn't need to be. So yeah. I can relate to your desire to just. Do what you have to do so you can walk mm. with just your legs. Yeah. I had a, after my six months of post-surgery chemo, the mm. first time, by the time I was done, I couldn't even get off the couch for my chemo. It made me so sick. Really? It was some nausea, but it was mostly just feeling poisoned. Really? Like my body just ached and hurt. There was like... yeah pain from the inside like just pushing its way out of my skin it was the oddest experience wow and yeah, i didn't get off the couch much mm. so i went to my doctor and had all kinds of tests a pulmonologist and a cardiologist to figure out what was wrong they finally f- figured it out and they said your heart and lung function is above average you're in great shape what happened is that your body your entire system your whole body just atrophied it acclimated to the lifestyle oh so I went to a physical therapist and I was, you know, doing squats and curls with like, you know, these long rubber bands, right? Mm. And I did it fiercely and went beyond what was expected of me, kind of like the way you're saying. So I was like, I'm not having this. Like, yeah. <laughs> if I can reverse this, I'm going to do everything in my power to reverse it, to bring myself back to as normal as I can be. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I. That's it. I think if we have that option, I mean, lots of people don't have that option, but if you're lucky enough yeah. to have that option, then you should definitely do what you can to make your life better and to make, you know, your experience, your human experience a, a lot nicer, I guess. I agree. And I also think we, you and I are both very fortunate that we have the kind of mind that pushed us because some folks... Mm. Or may I say, even for myself, you know, there were aspects of myself that felt defeated mm. 
from all the chemotherapy. It was so hard, so demanding. Uh, it affected my life and who I got to spend time with. Yeah. Um, it can and does affect the minds of most people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I can't imagine it not affecting a person. But my point is, for whatever reason, you and I are fortunate enough to have a kind of mind that didn't feel hopeless about recovering and getting stronger. Yeah. Getting both getting back on our feet, you know, and that's a, I will be always grateful for that part of my mind that, that pushes me mm-hmm. and gets me going. Yeah. So how long was physical therapy? How long did you have to do that before you were back on your feet? Um, I think it was about, so I had that one week of intense physio and then I think I had physio till the end of my treatment in the hospital and then I started going to um, a local physio here for about six months afterwards I think and then I was kind of on my own after that Um, but by that point I was walking without crutches I'd got myself to the point where I didn't need crutches (laughs) Um, because I was just so determined that I wouldn't have them and um, yeah I was I was kind of walking without a limp, which was really, really nice. Um, it took a while, but now I don't think you notice it. When I speak to people, they say I didn't even notice that there was anything, mm. that there would have been anything wrong. Um, if you look, there's a slight difference in the size because the muscle just isn't there on my left leg. But mm-hmm. realistically, you can't really tell and I remember going to a lot of my um oncology appointments um afterwards and if they had students in like medical students in they'd they'd get me to walk across the room and come back again and say where do you think she had cancer (laughs) (laughs) and the medical students would be like oh no um and yeah I think I think they were quite glad that I put that effort in to make sure that um you know I could live an active life I guess um I think it was a good reflection on what what they could do with the the power of medicine as well so yeah it was um it was a tough like I can't I can't lie it was it was a tough process there was it, it wasn't easy at all and it's kind of relearning your whole body I guess you know what your body's capable of and and what your body how you're because it felt it felt like they they put something into my body which isn't naturally supposed to be there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and how my body was adapting to that and actually the bone has sort of grown around the joint now, like as if it's accepted it into my body um, in the areas where it's close to my bone. So I think psychologically I was dealing with that as well, that there's this strange thing in my body now that technically isn't meant to be there. Um, And my whole body, you know, my gait, my posture, getting used to that experience of having something there. Um, Yeah, it was, it was a whole process, but um, yeah, I got, I got to the end of it and thankfully I'm I'm walking okay now, (laughs) which is good. Mm. No, it's wonderful. (laughs) So you complete your therapy and you're, what, 16? Uh, no, I was actually still 15 at that point. You're still um, 15? Yeah, it was New Year's Eve 2008. And 
I finished my chemotherapy at about two o'clock in the morning. So I went back home with my mum and dad um, while all the fireworks were going out on above me, which was quite lovely. And uh, yeah, woke up to the start of my life after cancer, I guess, on New Year's Day 2009. So mm. quite significant. <laughs> yeah. Not kidding. Wow. So 15 years old, it's 2009 New Year's Day. You're like, all right, starting <laughs> out. Yeah. Fresh. <laughs> Rebirth. And has life since then as far as, you know, we finished physical therapy and then boom. So how's it been since then? Good. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Um, I've had some long-term side effects from the chemotherapy. Yeah? Um, I've got cardiomyopathy now so my heart's a little bit damaged um i've got constant tinnitus which is quite annoying yeah and um yeah and then just my my leg i guess really um gives me aches and pains now and again but apart from that touch wood i'm all right <laughs> i'm doing okay um hmm. yeah <laughs> i got you yes yeah, so you've cardiomyopathy what exactly mm. does that mean? Um, it means that, so it's actually called chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy because it was the chemotherapy that brought it on. Um, it means that my heart doesn't pump as well as it should. So I think it's the left ventricle, I think, um, mm. doesn't, doesn't pump the blood as much as it should around the body. It doesn't work as hard as it should. So... They measure something called the ejection fraction, which is, I may be completely wrong with this, but I think it's the amount of blood that the heart pumps out um, every beat. And mine was a little bit below normal. And then I've been on medication to kind of bring it up to a more stable level. Um, but yeah, that was only sort of in the last few years. So it's when I finished chemotherapy, they did all sort of heart scans and things then. And, and I was fine. Um, there was a little bit of damage, but not a lot. And then as I've got older, it's kind of deteriorated a little bit. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. I go walking a lot and, um, you know, and it, I'm not too breathless or anything like that. It's yeah. more heart palpitations I get now and again, really, which drives me a bit nuts. <laughs> What's it like? It feels like I can't get my breath. And sometimes it feels like it stops completely and then it restarts again. And I have mm. like a, a slight panic. Um, but yeah, I usually get it after I have um, a lot of sweet stuff, a lot of sugar or a lot of caffeine. Um at one point, they thought I might be allergic to chocolate, which absolutely ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> As um, it would most people's. <laughs> um, luckily, I wasn't. But yeah, it's, it kind of seems to be brought on um, around certain, certain things sort of trigger it. But I'm kind of, I, I guess over the last few years, I've kind of been more in touch with my body and I know what sort of things do set it off. So I kind of, avoid them um obviously oh, I'm, I'm never going to give up chocolate but <laughs> right. i just restrict the amount i have rather than eating a whole bar <laughs> yeah no and it sounds a little bit uh 
you know, a little bit scary if you're, uh, gr- you know, trying to catch your breath and it feels like your heart stops. Like that's not a, yeah, not something you want to experience. No, it's a really weird thing. And um, I, I said to, I went to A and E actually a couple of Christmases ago because I was in IKEA. Do you have IKEA in the US? Yeah. yeah. What's A and E? Oh, that's a department store. No, um, accident and emergency. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not the same. <laughs> not quite, no. <laughs> not quite the lovely day hat that you might have at the department store. <laughs> uh, what do you guys call it? The emergency room? Emergency room, and now it's called the emergency department. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> not much to buy there, and what you can buy, you probably don't want. Um, yeah, I went into A and E um, in the hospital here. Okay, hmm? I went into A and E in the hospital here because. Um, well, you mentioned IKEA, right? So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> IKEA A and E, like yeah, no. I know. it's not your average night out. I like Bloomingdale's. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, yeah, so I was in IKEA and we were tucking into some meatballs in the cafe, and all of a sudden my heart felt like. It had stopped and I just saw this white circle where my, my boyfriend was. And Whoa. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to pass out or something's going to happen. Um, and then and I sort of grabbed his hand and then it restarted again. So it was absolutely fine. But my I have like um, a Fitbit on and it sort of spiked a little bit. Um, so we went to A&E just to get checked out and, and I was fine. But moments like that, I think just really terrify me a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, I haven't had any problems in a long time, but I've sort of been trying to clean my diet out a little bit and stop eating so much shit and <laughs> making sure I, I do some exercise now and again. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All it sounds like stuff. It, certainly uh, being your best interest. And I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I found for myself, I don't know if it's a result of all the chemo and surgeries and anesthesias I've been through, or if it's just the fact that I'm, you know, now 50. Uh, but my body is way more responsive to what I eat. Mm, yeah. And so like, like I eat pretty much, I don't eat grain. Don't you? Like any kind. I feel really? so much better. And then if, you know, one day a week I want to have, grain i will Mm. and it's fine but when i eat it consistently my body just just like uh just crashes energetically and emotionally from eating the grain when i took the grain out i get carbohydrates through things like you know uh you know sweet potatoes yams carrots Mm. uh those kinds of things squash you know i think squash has carbohydrates i hope (laughs) Uh, but i just my body does not like grain and i can only imagine that if there's this like maybe a glycemic crash every time i'm i've digested the grain or every time Mm. you know i get hungry again like that can't be good for the body no no imagine what that triggers as far as the response of the body to manage that so now i don't eat it and Mm. you know like you know if i eat grain actually what i found is that in the spring summer and fall when there's allergens in the air and the pollen and everything mm-hmm. my allergies are 
down by like 75% just by not eating grain. Really? And if I am going to, yeah, so like say I'm out with my boy and I want to eat an ice cream cone. Yeah. And I want the cone. I know the next day I'm going to have to, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to have my allergies will be on the, on the rise. So if I have something scheduled for the following day where I don't want to have to deal with that, maybe I won't eat that food that day. And if I eat it every day, it's just going to knock me around. But, you mm. know, my body has become far more demanding of yeah. me. Yeah. And, you know, we, we want to feel well, right? And so if, like, reducing the sugar and eating only part of the chocolate bar keeps your heart <laughs> in good shape, then, yeah, right, that's well worth it. I mean, yours is far more extreme than mine. Here we go, right? Here's the, here comes the conversation about the comparing. But, <laughs> but yours is. I mean, you're talking about your heart. I'm talking about a headache. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they are different. Only slightly. Mm. Do you so find the, that you're... Sorry. I'm no, please. Right over you. Do you find that you're much more aware of sort of your... what your body can take after cancer than you were before? Yes. My body is not as... My body does not bounce back the way it used to. Yeah. I had to explain to some friends, I'm like, look, fellas, like, I'm not... I was the same age as you, but now I'm not. Mm. That doesn't mean that I can't bring myself back. And I, you know, currently, you know, I do pull-ups and I do push-ups and, you know, dips and I walk or and I ride a, uh, you know, a bicycle, you know, a stationary bicycle mm -hmm. uh, to keep myself healthy and to try to continue to bring myself back. But without question, my body was not the same after yeah. treatment. And now that I've been through two major surgeries, uh, you know, for cancer and mm. all the treatments, you know, it's taken a lot to come back. And I will tell you, so my last treatment ended in June of 2012. And mm. now it's 2021. It's been, you know, we're going on nine years. It was only two or three years ago that I really felt like I was starting to come back wow. from all that treatment, you know? Mm. Yeah. What sort of triggered that, do you think? What made you think that you were starting to come back? So there is a state park not far from where I used to work. Mm. And I would walk the stairs to the top of the waterfall. Mm. And, you know, and it's, it's a cascading waterfall that goes for like, you know, it takes like, you know, I don't know, but 20 minutes to get to the top. Oh, wow. And I used to stop, you know, four times. Yeah. Four separate times, and I was walking up the stairs. It's, you know, people that are not in good shape, you see them just struggling. I bet, and yeah. I got, And I got to the, and I used to be able to walk up to the top of the steps. Like, it wasn't even an issue for me. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. I could not do it. Mm. And so... I was like, kind of like you were when you were getting your physical therapy. I was like, no, thank you. Yeah. And I started walking those steps like four or five times a week on my lunch break until I could finally walk to the top without stopping. Wow. And I'd pass people who were stopping and they'd say, wow, man, you're a, this is easy for you, huh? I'm <laughs> like, 
Um, after one year of constantly stopping, I can now do it without stopping. Like, I didn't want them to think for one second. Like, no, I had to work my tail off mm-hmm. to walk up these steps because mm. I wanted it. Yeah. And when the weather was no good, you know, in the wintertime, I would walk the road that was in the park that, you know, it was an incline uh, going up the hill because I don't want to lose it. Mm. You know, it's it's easier to bring it back now. Like if I start getting, if I start putting off my exercise and that kind of thing, and I go to walk up those stairs or a hill, it might be difficult for me, but, you know, a few runs you know, a few days in a row and all of a sudden, like I'm back, I can, I can build it back. But what stands out the most is you know, only a handful of years ago, it took a year to get myself back. Uh, my yeah. body just had, my body had been through too much. Mm. And I really love that you asked that question because now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, wow, that's pretty fantastic. That yeah. I was able to bring it back. It is. It's amazing. It's interesting for me because obviously, because I was so young when I had cancer, I don't know what my adult body would have been like had I not had cancer. Sure. So it's interesting for me to speak to people who know what their adult body was like before cancer and then the difference afterwards. Um, but yeah, that sounds amazing. So you've got that determination too. Yes, I do. <laughs> in the areas that I have it. In the areas that I don't, <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> Did they have to change the, uh, so, so did you grow taller, Mm. uh, after they put the, the, the joint in? No, thankfully (laughs) I'd stopped growing. (laughs) Thankfully. Um, but when I was having my operation, I think it's meant to be a four hour operation or it's meant to be like three hours or something. It's meant to be a few hours anyway. Um, I was in there for a lot longer than I was meant to be in there. And obviously my parents are stressing. They're like, where is she? What's happening? And what had happened is <laughs> the prostheses, so this joint that they'd made for me was too small. So they had to try and lengthen it or or make another one or like get another one from somewhere while I was still knocked out. <laughs> whoops <laughs> I know can you imagine um so yeah so thankfully once I'd had the operation I stopped growing so I didn't didn't need any more sort of changes but I did see people because I was on a kids ward obviously younger kids who had it it, it generally tends to affect teenagers and, and people in their um early 20s but if there were kids who had it there was this kind of machine that they brought out, which also blows my mind. And it's like a magnetic thing. And they put it around, so they didn't have to do any surgery as such if they were growing bit by bit, but they'd put this magnetic machine around their leg and do some kind of wizardry with it. And it would lengthen the the joint, but inside the leg very slowly. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was amazing, but... Thankfully, I didn't have to have any of that because I was just, I'm, I'm the height I am now. I'm five foot four and a half, I think, five foot five. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't need, uh, didn't need any, any more, thankfully. Yeah. So they use a magnetic machine to 
slowly increase the length of mm. the rod. Yeah, I don't know how exactly it works. Sometimes I think maybe I dreamed it. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe it was all a dream. Um, it's a great I'm dream. Sure, I, I'm pretty sure it happened. Um, but when you say it, it just seems a bit unreal. But I suppose lots of things are in this world anyway. Uh, yeah, but it was, it was a stranger. I think a big thing for me, being on a kid's ward... I think being on a kid's ward was the worst thing, the worst part about having the cancer. Really? Yeah, for sure. Because uh, the kid's ward was from babies to the age of 18, and there wasn't many teenagers, but there were a lot of little kids and babies. And I just, it just broke my heart. It just honestly broke my heart. Um, there were... You know, a, a couple of kids died when I was there and, oh my you know, it's just, yeah, it's just, I don't know, I think it affects you in a way that, I don't know, uh, it, it, it affects you for the rest of your life because I can't, I feel like I have to live my life for the kids who didn't get to live theirs, you know? And it sounds like that can occur as inspiration and it can also occur as pressure or mm. guilt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, th I had a lot of survivor's guilt that I don't think I really dealt with until a few years ago because there, was, there were two boys who died while I was on the ward and one was three and one was 12. And then there was a girl called Charlotte who was around my age and I promised to go and see her um, because we kept in touch because she was there when I was there. Um, and she, she'd relapsed and she'd gone back into hospital and I promised to go and see her when I was back from university. And the day I was meant to go and see her was the day that I was told that my dad's cancer was incurable. So that absolutely threw me and I didn't go and see her. And then she died a few months later and like the guilt from that was horrendous as well. Um, but yeah, it, I don't know. I, I did feel that, that pressure, I suppose, that I do want to make something of my life or, or leave something, you know, help people in some way. Um, I, I didn't want, I think, I think I was blessed with kind of like a second chance that some people didn't get. And, um, yeah, there is that, that pressure, but then also that, you know, just that gratitude that I was able to to be the age I am now, I guess, which is 27 going on 28. Yeah. <laughs> I am curious, do you still feel guilt, survivor's guilt, or was that just part of your process then? Um. I think very rarely. I think I went through a time of feeling it quite often. Mm -hmm. um, and it would come up and I'd think, oh, God, what am I doing? I need, you know, I should be doing. So I, my full-time job is in marketing. And um, a few years ago, I was in a job that I really, really loved. But I felt like I should be doing something more or helping people more or fundraising more or doing something to give something back, I guess. And... Yeah, as you said, that serves as inspiration, but it also adds that little bit of pressure. And I think something else that 
I had hanging over me for a long time was that I didn't have enough time to do all the things I wanted to do. <laughs> you know, I've got a, a, a massive list of books I want to read and places I want to go and, and things I want to see. And I thought, right, I have to do everything now because there's not going to be enough time. I don't have enough time to do all the things I want to do. And that was something that I took with me for years after I had cancer. I think it was only about three years ago that I finally thought, you know, slow down, it's okay, you don't have to do everything at once. And like that thing you say about, you were saying about that control, and I was telling you about how I needed that sort of control. Um, I was like, okay, if I read this amount of books in, in this amount of time, then I'll have read all the books on my reading list. But I keep adding more books to my reading list all the time. You know? Right, right. <laughs> so I think a few years ago, a lot of the... I bought a flat on my own, basically. I bought an apartment on my own and I spent a lot of time by myself and that was the time where I really confronted everything. And I thought, you know, I can't put this pressure on myself all the time because I'm just putting myself under more stress. And it is just that sort of surrender to whatever's going to happen. It doesn't matter if I... I haven't got to think of all the books I haven't read. I've got to think of all the books that I have read. Or I haven't got to think of all the places I haven't seen yet. I've got to think of all the places I have seen. Because I just put this constant pressure on myself that I, I'm running out of time and I need to do everything right now, otherwise it's never going to get done. Um, it sounds like your mortality was like, it wasn't like you were chasing a carrot on the stick. It's more like you were running from what was coming from behind. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it's an inevitable part of life. And, you know, I can't change it. I don't know when when I'm going to go. I don't, I don't know when my time will be. Right. So you just got to accept it, I guess. And that was a big thing for me, that acceptance. It's wonderful that you distinguish that. You noticed, like, wait a second, what am I doing? <laughs> I want to I get, all, I mean, because it makes sense because you realize, like, wow, like, Tomorrow was promised to no one. Yeah, exactly. It took me a long time to reach that point. And I think, because when I was in hospital, it was all very, like, there were lots of people around. And then I was living at home, so my parents were here. Then I went to university, and there were always people around there. And then when I bought that apartment a few years ago, it was the first time I've lived by myself. And it was the first time I've been able to think, okay, what do I want to do now? Like, what, what what do I want my life to look like? And that was when I started, you know, journaling, meditating and, and coming back to this bigger picture, I guess, that I'd kind of lost sight of because I got so caught up in all the, I need to do this now, I'm running out of time. Um, yeah, it was kind of coming to that acceptance that that I always knew, I think, from having cancer that it's not about how many things you do or how many things you see. For me, it's always been about, it's going to sound very, very cheesy, and I apologise, but it's always been about the people who you love and giving that love out and getting that love in return. And I just had to be by myself to have that space and time to come back to that idea rather than being caught up in everything else, you know? Yeah, I don't think that was cheesy at okay. all. I think that was that was real. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you stopped reacting to life mm -hmm. and you started creating your life. Exactly. And once you started creating your life, 
you realize that if what I'm creating is going to involve the people I love and care about, like, mm-hmm. and what I devote myself to is very personal and very important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that was a massive transition for me in terms of yeah trying to do all the things instead of just trying to be, you know, and just slowing down a little bit. Yeah, meditation was was and still is every day a hugely powerful mm-hmm. part of my life. It has made such a difference. It's crazy, isn't it? I only do 10 minutes every day of meditation and mm-hmm. I can't tell you how that 10 minutes a day has changed me in so many ways. I love it. Yeah, my uh my life has changed, you know. I mean, first time I was taught about meditation I was 5. My, you know, my parents brought us us three kids to transcendental meditation. Really? uh, Wow. Yeah. I doubt I did it for more than two days following. (laughs) You know what I mean? But the seed was planted. And then throughout my life at various times, I would meditate. Mm. And then after my, you know, once the cancer kind of came into my life, then it became more consistent. And then about eight years ago, it just became a daily thing. Mm -hmm. It's just something just shifted yeah and i was like this is so powerful definitely that's amazing that you that that seed was planted so young though not many yeah. people have that in their life no i never never dawned on me that it was a bit peculiar oh. and it is amazing and my dad meditated um as he got older he would meditate with the ball game on he'd have his little transistor radio with a little earpiece going in really but but that was still meditating, though. You know what I mean? So he yeah. just sat with his eyes closed. That was hit, you know, because really, like, I think the biggest struggle for Westerners with the, I mean, and this is coming from the teachers that I've listened to. This isn't my, you know, insight. Yeah. But so many teachers have taught me, or I've learned from so many teachers, that the Western idea of meditation is what discourages so many people from doing it. Yeah. People say, I can't meditate, it's too noisy. I can't get my mind to be quiet, I can't do this. Yeah. What what they don't know is that that's a myth, that's a mistake. That's mm-hmm. that was a maybe that was like a you know, that was lost in interpretation. Yeah. Because our cultures and the e and the West are very different from the I say the East, you know, that's that's so like, you know, Euro American centric. But let's say, you know, <laughs> where you know, let's say uh you know, where 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 you know, India, a- a- Asia uh, where these powerful practices came from in what, like the 50s and 60s coming into Europe and the United States, like there was something lost in translation. Definitely. And, like, I just recently responded to a friend's struggle with meditation. I said, I said, look, like just close your eyes mm. and notice how your body feels and mm. follow your breath and Sometimes your mind will be like a video game, you know, going full speed times 10. It's yeah. like, and, and, and so just sit with that. Notice that. Watch those thoughts go by. You know, sometimes for me, it's a movie and a soundtrack. And it's just like, it's just there's so much going on. It's like my mind won't stop. And other times, out of nowhere, it's the only thing I'm noticing is my thoughts about how there's nothing happening. Mm, yeah. And 
you know, we're taught that we have some kind of control over our thoughts. And if you're thinking and if your mind is racing, then you're doing it wrong. Mm. And I told her, I'm just like, no, just like, just be with whatever is happening. And I feel like, you know, just notice your body, notice your breathing and allow whatever is happening to be. Yeah. This, this whole idea that you're failing if you're, I mean, like I said, it's, I would say most people when they're meditating have got a circus going on in their head. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And you're meditating. Congratulations. You did it. (laughs) (laughs) Gold star for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, and once you realize that, it just changed. Once I realized that, it just changed my relationship. I said, oh, Mm. my relationship to it. I was like, oh, I'm not, you know, if if you want. Yeah, you're not doing it wrong. Yeah. You're not doing it wrong. It, and so you also mentioned, you talked about, uh, you know, having survivor's guilt. Mm. And I've heard that. I've never had that. But what I have had is, I don't know if it's guilt. Mm. You tell me what you think. But like when, when I, now that I've had cancer twice and I have cancer free, you know, and I'm cancer free having difficulty talking today (laughs) uh my mind got racing with all that we were talking about so it's hard to you know now i gotta like grab a hold and bring myself back meditate (laughs) yeah meditation excites me (laughs) Uh, i do sometimes you know since i've had a stage two and stage four diagnosis when i speak to folks who there is no cure yeah there's only treatment mm. or the treatment isn't even working all that well. You know, my mind will wander like, hmm, like I wonder how they feel about the fact that I, you know, yeah. I have concern that there could be cancer-free envy and then I will want to be careful around that. Similar to how I used to respond to people in wheelchairs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm the same because I talk openly on social media about having cancer and surviving cancer. And then I think, what if people see it or come across my account? And then, you know, I speak to a lot of people who have been recently diagnosed as well. And I think I do want to be that, I do want to show people that there is life after cancer. But then for some people, there won't be. And I, I, I think I feel the same as you with that, where I'm, I'm kind of like, you don't want to, I don't know, you do feel guilty, I suppose, in a way, because you got through it and some people won't have that chance. It's, it's, a, it's a weird thing because you, essentially you're experiencing the same thing, but experience it in two very different ways, because in one way there's hope at the end of it. And I guess in one way there's, there's not, um, yeah, it's a really difficult thing, I think, to, to deal with. Hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, how do we honor Mm. where they are and be supportive? Yeah. So one, you know, just being in that inquiry, I think is a valuable place to be. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the poet Jack Gilbert? No. 
So do you mind if I uh, read this poem? Yeah, please, go for it. Because it's Let bringing it, it to my attention. It's like I can't not think about it. <laughs> so Jack Gilbert is this poet that I discovered. I was listening to the book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't I read that, to that book, book, but I know him. Oh, I listened to it like two or three times. It is like if you are a creator in the world, she will bring your mind through a process that will leave no stone unturned. Oh, I listened to it two that. or three times because it was just like so valuable. Mm. It was really wonderful. And she mentioned Jack Gilbert because she was in his office. He was, you know. So I looked up this Jack Gilbert guy and I found this poem. I found a book that he wrote. I only liked about maybe four or five of the poems in there. I think mm. four. But this one so stood out to me. Okay. It's called A Brief for the Defense. It's not that long. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. Their laughter, excuse me, there is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. Wow. That is really powerful. I need to look this guy up. Yeah, it blew my mind. That's a lot of food for thought right there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't process it all right now. No, I needed wow. to read it multiple times, you know? Mm. Wow. And it's just... From that point of view... From that context, you know, to deny ourselves joy, to mm. feel bad about our happiness. It's like, what are, if th these people are suffering? Like, you know, made me think of like the gal you were going to go visit. Mm. And your dad well, got diagnosed the day you were going to visit her, right? Yeah, well, he was told that his cancer was incurable and they couldn't do anything for him. And, and, and then I bet if, if you were to ask her, like, you know, 
if you were to have a conversation with her, right? Like, and say, mm -hmm. well, this happened. She'd yeah. be like, she'd be like, well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. your dad. I know. I know. And we keep these things with us. And then I think, if it was me suffering, I wouldn't want other people to be unhappy because right. I was suffering. It actually reminds me, as you were reading that, of when the day I got diagnosed and I was sat upstairs in my um, mother's bedroom and I was looking out the window because everyone had arrived here. All my, my mother's one of seven, so there was a lot of people here. They'd all come once they heard this news. And I kind of took myself away from it all. I didn't want to be part of it. And I sat in the window and I, and I was crying because... I just didn't know what to expect, I guess. And I had to go into hospital that night, so I had to pack a bag and everything. And as I looked out the window, my next-door neighbour was laughing in the garden and the sun was shining and she was laughing with someone. And I was thinking, why is she laughing? Does it, doesn't she know that I've just been diagnosed with cancer? And then immediately after that thought, I realised that the world keeps turning and life goes on and oh. everything sort of balances out you know it was that's exactly what it reminded me of as you were reading that poem yeah oh, i'm so with you it's like the first time someone in my life died mm. and as tears are running down my face i'm looking at the world like what the hell are you people doing yeah like my father died what is wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> don't you all know <laughs> i know how, how can this even be happening yeah, wow, what a powerful experience. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so... Yeah, when I die, I don't want people to stop living in honor of my life. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Live in honor of my life. Yeah. I know. I know y'all yeah. miss me. I love you too. <laughs> 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 mm. yeah but it's exactly that you know you don't you don't want people to stop living just because you're not there anymore yeah to see it so speaking of creating our lives out of mm. this you have created yourself as a you're a, a, you're a life coach yeah confidence coach confidence coach so tell yeah. everyone about <laughs> that okay um so I knew that I wanted to do something for cancer survivors for a long, long time um, because I found that when I was going through treatment, um, the physical side of things was the most prominent thing. And when I finished treatment, the emotional and mental stuff all caught up with me. <laughs> and that was the moment when the safety net of the hospital's gone, you don't have any appointments, you've just got this empty diary stretching out in front of you. Yes. And people seem to think you're better now, so they kind of just go back to their lives and you're like, what the hell just happened? Kind <laughs> yep. of out on your own in this little life raft. Um, so... Yeah, so I knew that I, I wanted to do something to help cancer survivors when they finish treatment. And confidence was a big thing for me because when I finished treatment, um, obviously, like we spoke about, I was a teenager and I was uh, 
very self-conscious and, and when I finished treatment I didn't have any hair um I put on a bit of weight after my treatment because um I actually had interferon injections for 18 months afterwards so injections in my legs every week what um, is that? it was part of a trial drug so they asked me if I wanted to take part in a trial and I was like yeah of course whatever I can do to help <laughs> go on then um so I was selected for this like at random they select you and uh I think they were seeing I think interferon is used now in some sort of capacity in the treatment of cancer but it was to see if it boosted your immune system and um so I had a nurse <laughs> they asked me if I wanted to inject myself but I I wasn't brave enough to do that so I had a nurse come to the house every week to inject inject me um with my leg in my thighs so after not eating as much on chemo and then sort of after chemo eating everything because my appetite had come back and I wasn't throwing up everywhere anymore and then having interferon on top of that um I put on a little bit of weight my hair was very short so I didn't feel like myself and I was just a bit awkward and uncomfortable yeah and um my confidence really got hit I think um I carried on studying when I was in hospital I carried on with my schoolwork. um I sat my exams um in the months after I finished chemo and then um I passed them so I, I in the UK we have GCSEs when you're 16 and then you go on to college or you go on to do your A-levels so I did my A-levels and then I went on to university after that, which was really good. But throughout that time, I had a very low feeling of self-worth. I wasn't very confident in myself. And I guess I didn't really know myself very well because I hadn't had that time to kind of grow into who I wanted to be. Um, so confidence was a big thing. So last year when I was on furlough from my last job um I've started a new job now which I'm loving which is in still in marketing and um, but when I was on furlough I had a really long time to think about what I was doing with my life what I wanted to do with my life and all these things kept coming up and I'd done um I started a counseling course a, a few years prior but it just isn't, didn't resonate with me as much as coaching did because coaching, I'd be able to share my story as well. And um, with counselling, it's sort of a bit more one-sided, I guess. Um, so I saw um, an advert for a, an online course that I could do um, in coaching. And I thought this could be my opportunity to help cancer survivors in some way and to help them improve their confidence. So I'm just going to go for it. So um, I sat this course and, and passed the tests and everything and um, got certified. And uh, yeah, and then I think I started coaching people around September time. Um, and then in the October or November, so I was originally targeting cancer survivors and I was meant to start working with one lady, but um, over Zoom. Um, but she was a bit older and she wasn't used to the technology and everything. So that kind of got sidelined. Um, so I actually haven't 
coached as many can- cancer survivors as I would like, the whole intention mm-hmm. of setting this thing up. <laughs> um, but I have coached uh, people with chronic illnesses and then um, a couple of months after uh, I had a message from someone who said I, I don't fit into that bracket but I do think you could help me with my confidence so I kind of broadened it a little bit and started coaching women from all walks of life and uh, now I'm kind of trying to niche down a bit into uh, confidence coaching in your career so um, I'm working with um, women who kind of want to up their confidence in the workplace or people who have finished cancer treatment and want that confidence to get back into work after they finished cancer so I've written a few articles and um yeah done a few uh did I say after they finished cancer after they finished treatment I meant <laughs> we know what you meant <laughs> <laughs> after the, I wish we could all just finish cancer um, <laughs> um yeah so I'm kind of going down um going down that path really of, of confidence coaching in in women's careers and it's been really uplifting for me um to not just give something back to cancer survivors but to plenty of women in the workplace who just want to be able to speak up in meetings more or ask for that pay rise or go for that job that they think is totally beyond them Mm -hmm. um yeah so it's been um it's been really interesting so I've only been coaching really a few months but I know that it's something that I want to continue for a very, very long time. It's wonderful. I love it. Thank you. Uh, and so it's such a joy to hear that you are uh, you, you found this niche mm-hmm. and it works for you and you can, something you're familiar with, you've gone through it. Yeah. When I decided I wanted to be a coach, I just knew. Yeah. I really can't stand the word life coach. And one of these days on my website, I'm going to change it because, you know, I think coach and you think of sports and then people yeah. coaching and telling, telling you how to navigate something. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling anyone how to do anything. You know, yeah. Through the conversation I have with them, they distinguish for themselves what's going to be the most empowering approach. Exactly. And we can, exactly. Un, we, can un, we can unfold, you know, and untangle where they're stuck, right? But mm-hmm. in the meantime, this is the language we use. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. So you Maybe do, um, yeah, you do survive, uh, cancer survivorship coaching, don't you? Yes. So what does that involve? Any area of survivorship, mm. be it, you know, from start to finish, during, after. Wow. P- people tend to call after. Mm. You know, most folks don't think coach and they get diagnosed, they think doctor. Yeah. And the reality is there will come a point where folks realize you get diagnosed with cancer, yeah, go to a doctor's appointment and get a coach mm. because mm-hmm. you're going through so much when you're diagnosed. You're not thinking clearly. And if you or you're, may, oh, let me rephrase, you may be thinking clearly, but you're stepping into an arena. Most people are stepping into an arena where they have no familiarity. Yeah. Definitely. And when you have like a cancer survivorship mentor, someone who's been through it mm. and can coach you to help you to distinguish, you know, what, where you're stuck, where you're stopped, you know, and what thinking has you there, mm-hmm. right? Then it would just make sense yeah. to hire a coach. I think that's, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to become quite common. Mm. Uh, it just, it's not, 
it's not in the conversation right now. Yeah. But if I had had a coach, if I had had somebody who could, uh, you know, say, okay, you know, first of all, you know, the initial stuff, like, okay, great. Have you gotten a second opinion? Have you gotten a third opinion? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. You know, what's a, you know, you know, the, it affects our relationships. It affects, you know, with ourselves, with other people. There's so many aspects that it's so foreign. Yeah. Uh, and so valuable. Um, I, you know, I've coached people whose loved ones have cancer. Mm. And then like oh, you, you know, fo- yeah, and uh, yeah, right. Caregivers and folks mm. will call and say, look, I don't have cancer, but you know, mm. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love what you do. Can I work with you? I'm like, well, sure. You know, if we're a match, then we'll do it. Yeah. It's still affecting them in some way. Yes. Yes, indeed. So where can people find you? Um, I have a website, which is called whatcomesnextcoaching.com. Um, hopefully it'll be changing soon because I've been rebranding to Ali Morgan Coaching across everything else except my actual website. Um, but I originally called it What Comes Next because I was, I was talking to cancer survivors and it was kind of what comes next after treatment. Um, so anyway, sorry, whatcomesnextcoaching.com. Um, I'm Ali Morgan coaching on Instagram and I'm Ali Morgan coaching on Facebook too. All right. Wonderful. I'll make sure that's in the, uh, in the, uh, show notes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm writing it down and trying to talk to you and it is not working. Um, yeah, I, I always put, uh, I always put um, notes beneath the episodes so people can, let's say someone's listening to part of your experience mm. uh, and they're like, you would love this part. It go to, you know, one hour and 10 minutes. Oh, and then you can, you know, that's pretty cool. I love that but, when they do that on YouTube videos now as well. Right. The timestamps. So yeah. someone says, you know, you're like, oh God, I, I've, you know, I don't want to listen to a, an, you know, a 90 minute podcast. Mm. What can I do? Well, you can just go to this one part. So I'll make Amazing. sure. To, but to keep it uh, in those notes as well. So people can be sure to know where to find you. No, thank you. Sorry. I've probably been all over the place throughout this podcast. So your timestamps are going to be like, <laughs> no, you want to know what it's perfect because it's how it goes every time. Oh, good. Okay. It's, you know, like, you could write, we could have 10 different podcasts about this and it would go 10 different ways because mm. it's just such a profound, life-changing experience. Definitely, different, yeah. I mean, I remember parts of my experience that I'd forgotten about as a result of having conversations with people. Yeah, it brings uh, it back up, doesn't it? Yeah, when I was having a conversation with a guest and it was the first time I understood, really understood what it meant when a person said, I didn't want to be in my body. Something Mm -hmm. they said to me had me realize that when I woke up from surgery and was, you know, no longer dopey and could think clearly, maybe the day after, Mm. I looked at my colostomy and I was just like, no, like, I don't want to be in this body. This is grossing me out. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was, I found it gross. And I didn't want to be in my body and I didn't have language. I didn't really get that that's, I didn't have language for it. Mm. I didn't get that that's where I was mentally and emotionally. Yeah. And yeah. through one of these conversations, I got there, you know, because we're just talking. 
Yeah. We're two people in an airplane <laughs> with a few hours, and we both have cancer, so we're going to talk. We both had cancer, so we're going to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. No, I think those things we've talked about today, which have kind of brought stuff back up for me that I kind of have forgotten about as well, I guess. So, yeah, like that moment in the pool, I think. It's mm. such, such an eye opening experience at the time, but yeah. Yeah, I love that. I loved when you told me that. It's just like, oh, like this was your whole world had shifted. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I forgot oh. how powerful it was until we talked about it just now. So <laughs> thank you for that. Oh, good. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> this has been a uh, real treat. Yeah, it's been great really lovely to, know to talk you. to you. Oh. <laughs> Is there anything else? No. Did you miss anything? I don't think so. All right. Well, you have a beautiful day. Thanks so much for taking your time with me. Thank you, Bert. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. See you all in the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.